Throughout history, many trials have been called the trial of the century. Two examples are the trial of Socrates and the Scopes Monkey Trial. But there is one trial that is more than just the trial of the century. That's because it's the most famous trial in all of history. The destiny of all people who have ever lived or will live is inseparably linked to its outcome. I'm speaking, of course, of the trial of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Stay tuned for a discussion of this trial with an outstanding legal expert. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, Here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I have been joined in the studio today by our associate evangelist, Colonel Tim Moore, who's scheduled to take over the leadership of this ministry in September of 2021. And our special guest is an outstanding Dallas, Texas attorney by the name of Doug Brady. He is also a very gifted Bible teacher, and he teaches a class each Sunday morning at First Baptist Church here in Dallas, the church where Robert Jeffress serves as pastor. Welcome to Christ in Prophecy, brother. Dr. Reagan, it's so good to be here with you. Well, thank you. Folks, our purpose in this program is to discuss the legality of the judicial procedures that were applied to Jesus. Were His various trials legally sound, or was He the victim of a series of kangaroo courts? Also, we want to talk with Doug about the spiritual significance of the outcome of Jesus' trials. But first, I want to ask Doug to give us a quick overview of the facts, both of the arrest of Jesus and the chronology of His subsequent trials. As Jack Webb used to say on the old Dragnet TV program of the 1950s, just give me the facts, nothing but the facts. Well, I'd be happy to do that, Dr. Reagan. <laughs> Let me tell you, Jesus was arrested somewhere between uh, 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. Many of the historians believe it was April 10, 32 A.D. Okay. He was arrested without incident, of course, except one. One of his followers uh, swung a sword and cut off part of a man's ear. But since Jesus replaced that ear for the man, then no charges were brought mm. in regards to that. But he was arrested. He was then taken to the home of a man by the name of Annas, who, if you do any study on that man, he was really the godfather of Judea. He was in charge of all of the crime and the corruption that was going on at the time. They interrogated him there. Then they sent him over to Caiaphas's house, who was the acting uh, high priest at the time. He was interrogated there. And then they charged him with blasphemy. And uh, they had a trial before a portion of the Sanhedrin that didn't call everyone. Um, uh, they found him guilty and found him uh, worthy of being put to death. But they had a bit of a problem. Uh, they couldn't put anybody to death for a charge of blasphemy. And so the only way they could have him executed was to get the Romans to do it. Um, also, during this trial, they never gave him an opportunity to defend himself on the charge mm. of blasphemy. If uh, he had been allowed to do it, he could have brought in the man who had been born blind, for example, and who was given sight by Jesus. Other events like the resurrection of Lazarus that never occurred in history before. But he was not given that time and or allowed to, 
present a defense. Now they had a problem when they took it to the Roman court, uh, Dr. Reagan, and that is, is really simply this. Uh, blasphemy was not considered a crime worthy of death by the Romans. So they brought him on charges of sedition, tax evasion, and insurrection. And there they, they presented those to the Roman tribunal. Problem was he was found innocent of each of those charges. Once they found him innocent, they changed the charge to blasphemy again. He was found innocent of that. And then upon their threats of insurrection, Roman governor Pontius Pilate caved and sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion. Well, based on that, Doug, I, you've talked about the sequence of events, but let's, let's get to the legality of the various trials and the conviction itself, and go from the arrest all the way to the last trial itself. And on that note, I want to folks at home to realize that we have found a book by an attorney named Richard Wellington Husband. He wrote a legal analysis in 1916, and he said, the arrest was legal, the hearing by the Sanhedrin was legal, the course of the trial in the Roman court was legal, and the conviction was legal and was justified. Now, of course, on the other end of the spectrum, we have a renowned Messianic Jewish scholar named Arnold Frichtenbaum, who concluded in his analysis that Yeshua was tried before a kangaroo court whose proceedings arose out of a conspiracy. So, which was it, a legal proceeding or a kangaroo court? Well, let me tell you, I, when I graduated from law school, I had a friend named Irv Stone, and he convinced me to look into uh, these uh, uh, trials and what exactly happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, he convinced me to write something that he and I could both use in our teaching ministries. Uh, and uh, I looked at the Hebrew, I looked at the Greek, I studied historically, and I found out that if you and I had gotten together and tried to commit as many errors as we possibly could have in a legal proceeding like this, we may not have found or been able to accomplish as many as they did. Wow. Let me tell you, there really, some scholars will tell you there were six trials. That's because they're scholars, they're not lawyers. There are really only two trials. But if you divide it between the Jewish trial and the uh, Roman trial, in the Jewish trial, there were 18 different errors that would have required reversal wow. of the decision. Let me give you just a few. Uh, no trial was ever to commence during the hours of nighttime. Uh, and that's in the Mishnah, Sanhedrin uh, 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, trials were not to occur on the eve of a Sabbath. And of course, the, the Passover is considered a right. Sabbath. And that was error. The accused is never to be forced to testify against themselves. And yet Jesus was, and they beat him uh, to get him to answer. Um, someone was always required to be there to speak on behalf of the accused. Jesus had no one there to, to speak of on behalf of the accused. And uh, the high priest was never to participate in the questioning of the witness. And yet both Annas and Caiaphas right. both did that. Now what I did, I wrote a uh, petition for writ of certiorari to the Imperial Court of Rome. <laughs> I have that. I'm going to make that it. available to the ministry so that they can see it. Uh, it's also going to be on our website. And a writ of that nature means what? A writ of, of a certiorari? A writ of certiorari is to the highest court that you can possibly go to. Okay. And it says that there are errors which are 
so important that the jurisprudence of that court uh, would be injured if they don't consider it. Kind of a writ of assertion to that high court. That is exactly right. Gotcha. Now I told you there was a Jewish trial. There was also a Roman trial. Uh, it started out before Pontius Pilate. When he heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he thought, I can get out of this by transferring venue up to Herod the Tetrarch, who was responsible for Galilee and Patria. Mm. But once he got up there, uh, and Herod decided he didn't want anything to do with it, he said that the events that they're accusing Jesus of crimes of occurred in Judea, so he transferred venue back to Pontius Pilate. But in all of this, there were uh, at least seven errors that the Roman courts uh, committed, all of which are worthy of reversal. Now there's some errors you can commit that aren't reversal worthy, but all seven of these that I found were. For example, the Roman governor found Jesus not guilty on three separate occasions. How can you convict a man if you have made a finding of not guilty? Uh, when he went to Herod, the accused was tortured and beaten and forced to suffer great humiliation, which were against uh, Roman procedure. And clearly against uh, this kind of, uh, in a capital punishment situation. So all of those errors made this, in my opinion, the most error-prone capital trial I have ever considered in my career. And one of the things that always impressed me about it was the fact that the very people that he was being tried in front of among the Jewish authorities were the ones who were conspiring behind his back finding false witnesses. I mean the conspirators were the judges. Were the judges. And in fact they had already made a decision, Dr. Reagan, that one man ought to be sacrificed for the people. And you know John tells us that although Caiaphas meant that against Jesus, it was really prophetical because that's exactly what needed to be done. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So the trial became almost political more than legal in the sense of a calculation made beforehand and even the Roman authorities perhaps making a calculation of appeasing the, the rebellion or the unrest that could have uh, consumed the, uh, the territory had they not relented to the demands of these political leaders, these religious leaders. That's exactly right, Tim. And aren't you glad now that you live in a country that doesn't have politics involved in it? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Don't I wish I did? Yes, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> oh. that, that, that's an interesting observation. An interesting observation. How uh, things never change, do they? Yes, and I think, though, that when we come back, we ought to consider this. Really, who was on trial? and who was calling the shots. Okay, let's uh, take a break and when we come back we will ans answer that question. We would like to invite you to join us in a 16-day Bible Lands tour in the Mediterranean area in October of this year. The tour will originate in Rome where the group will spend two days visiting sites in the city. From Rome, the group will board a luxurious ship and begin a 12-day cruise that will include stopovers at the ports of Olympia in Athens and Greece, Ephesus in Turkey, the island of Cyprus, and the nation of Israel. 
Dr. Reagan, together with Dr. Andy Woods and novelist and musician Buck Storm, will be the featured speakers on the cruise. The Israel portion of the tour includes one day in the Galilee and two days in Jerusalem. There is also a post-cruise option called A Taste of Italy. It includes visits to Florence, Pisa, and Venice. For detailed information, contact Compass International Ministries at compass.org. Join Dr. Reagan as he teaches Bible prophecy while the ship is at sea and when he hosts a bus in Israel and serves as your scriptural guide to sites in the life of Jesus located in the Galilee and in Jerusalem. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy and our discussion with attorney Doug Brady about the arrest, trials, and conviction of Jesus. So, Doug, before we went on break, you made a fascinating statement that it wasn't just Jesus or really Jesus who was on trial. So, who was on trial if not Jesus Christ Himself? Jesus, Tim, was in complete control of every single thing that was happening in that trial. Okay. Every single thing that happened after the trial when He was beaten and when He was crucified. Absolute and complete control. If you look at it, the people on trial were people like Annas, Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate, Herod the Tetrarch, all of the Jewish leaders who were involved. Even the Roman Empire was on trial. And uh, as you think about it, let me give you one example. During uh, the trial, uh, the Roman trial, Pontius Pilate asked Jesus four separate questions. He may had four questions in the trial, and that was all he asked. Uh, the second question that he asked was, Are you really the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus answered him, and he told him that he was born to be a king, but that his kingdom was not of this world. If it was, his readers would be fighting about it. Uh, and uh, instead, he made the statement that Pontius Pilate needs to consider what's really true. Because in reality, truth is first not a fact, but a person. No, and that person of truth was standing right before Pontius Pilate. And he told Pontius Pilate the truth. And Pontius Pilate made the statement. What is truth? If you look at it in the Greek, it really comes across as sarcastic. The one thing I can't tell is, of course, the tone of voice that Pontius Pilate said it in. And he turned to walk away. Did he turn to walk away as he was saying it, even more dismissive, or did he wait till he said it first before he turned to walk away? But that was such a key event in the trial of Pontius Pilate. Because Pontius Pilate could have stayed there, Dave, and accepted the truth. And instead, he turned around and he walked away from the truth, walking into blackness and darkness. It's going to be separated from God for the rest of his life and thereafter for eternity. And eventually washed his own hands, even of the episode that he had overseen. He you know, thought he was washing yes. his own hands. I love what you say about his question, what is truth? Because we have also come full circle in our own society and culture to where many people dismiss the very concept that there is truth or that it can be known. 
and they would collectively ask, what is truth, or is there truth? You know, I appreciate what you said about Jesus being in control, because one of the scriptures I was going to read, actually two of them, first from 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that He, Jesus Christ, laid down His life for us. And John is really pointing back to a passage in John 10, and I'll read verse 17 and 18. For this reason, Jesus speaking, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. In other words, he was in complete control. This was not just some scheme that he was having to deal with and took the Father and the Son by surprise. Jesus Christ laid his life down willingly. That's what you're saying. Exactly. Very good. Well, tell us about the spiritual implications of the crucifixion. Why is this so important? Well, there's two reasons. Let's talk generally first, uh, Dr. Reagan, and then, and then let's talk specifically. Generally speaking, mankind was all dead in their sin. It was an, sin is an epidemic among the human race, and it can be only cured one way. And that one way is to let someone come who can live a perfect life and then voluntarily sacrifice himself for the others who have failed to live a perfect life. Jesus was able to accomplish that. You know, some people argue, was it more difficult for Jesus to live a perfect life for the 33 to 40 years that He lived here on earth as opposed to uh, going through crucifixion uh, as a means of death. Uh, but He accomplished both voluntarily to purchase a pardon for mankind. That's the general part of what He did. But let me tell you specifically what He did. He made it so that any one person could choose to have their sins forgiven and receive that loving forgiveness from Jesus Himself, and then to be made a child of God and to be able to spend eternity with Him forever. So, in that regard, if we put our faith in Christ, what becomes our legal status, Counselor, when we stand before that judgment seat of God? Because the Scripture is very clear throughout that we will stand before the judgment throne of God. So, what will be our legal status? Let me look back and compare it with Pilate. Pilate chose to turn and look away. Right. I would imagine there are some people who are listening in your audience today who are really going to have to make a choice, just like Pilate made. Do I stay and accept the truth of Jesus Christ, or do I turn and walk away? If they choose to turn and walk away, I just pray that they realize what they are doing. They're separating themselves from God. They're looking towards, walking towards eternal darkness and spending forever away from God. Everything that God is, they are going to experience in the opposite. If God is light, they're going to experience darkness. If God is love, they're going to experience severe rejection. If God is peace, all they will experience is tribulation. But more than that, I think it's important for them to know how they can make that decision to choose Jesus and His truth. 
And it's really, Dr. Reagan, a decision that a man or a woman makes in his own heart because God reads hearts. And in fact, if the people in our audience today have not made that decision, Tim, they ought to make it now Certainly. in their heart if they would simply call out to God and say, I recognize that I am a sinner and I am in need of salvation. I am also recognize that Jesus died for me because He loves me and He paid the penalty for my sin. So I want to receive His pardon right now and I believe in His name for salvation. You know, it says in John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even though that believe on His name. And if they make that decision in their heart, speaking to God like that, the decision is made. They're now a child of God and it lasts forever. But what about that person who says, I'm going to use an appeal to God's mercy. Okay, if I am going to stand before His throne someday, will we be able to point to our good works? For instance, I'll give you an example. The former mayor of New York City, who's now a presidential candidate, Michael Bloomberg, has said this, and I will quote him, I am telling you that if there is a God, that's his words, when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be stopping for an interview. I'm heading straight in because I have earned my place in heaven. It is not even close. What kind of a, an appeal would that be before a holy and righteous God appealing to His mercy in this case based on a supposed good works? Tim, I'm going to say it this way because I want the people who are listening to understand. That kind of a comment can only be made by an arrogant fool. Absolutely. And you know, yes. the Bible uses that word fool to yes. describe those who says, uh, who say there's no God or that God is not going to do... Think about it from this yeah, perspective. Paul has said in his heart, there is no God. Can or should the creature even think that they can make the rules for the Creator? No, the Creator made the creature. The Creator sets the rules for the creature. And if they choose to ignore those rules, they do so at their own peril. Mm. They're not going to be judged on a sliding scale. They're going to be judged in comparison to Jesus Christ. If they lived a perfect life like Jesus did, then they won't go to hell. But the Bible says it's very clear and been already been determined that there is no one with sin without sin. Yeah. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if they do that, they are in peril of spending, I said that wrong, it's not they are in peril. They will spend eternity without God they in a place stand, called the lake of fire. They already stand condemned. Well, I'm glad that uh, Tim raised this point because um, in 40 years of preaching and talking with people about uh, their eternal destiny, I have discovered that what I call the great lie of Satan. And the great lie of Satan from the beginning has been you can earn your salvation the Mormons teach that, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that, all the cults teach that you can earn your salvation. Uh, I've seen people stand on the steps of, of the cathedral in New York City and interview Catholics walking in and saying, are you going to go to heaven? Well, I think that I'm a little bit better than the person down the street and you know I've done this and I've given this and so forth and so on. People believe they're going to earn their way to heaven. We even show a little fi uh, excuse me, film once in a while that is very clever that was made by a youth minister in uh, Las Vegas. And it shows people standing uh, at the judgment seat. And they say things like, well, you know, I, I gave a lot of money to build a baseball park for kids. 
another guy comes up and says, do you take American Express? <laughs> it just goes on. Because that's what people believe. I even find people who go to church every Sunday saying, well, I think I can make it. On balance, I'm better yeah, than on balance. And almost the, the picture of the justice, scales of justice, they think, well, my good outweighs my bad. But you're making it very clear, none of us I want is you to speak enough. strongly to our viewers about the, the impossibility of earning salvation. You know, it's, it's a shame, Dave, when you see people who you know have believed a lie, and the effects of their belief of that lie are so grievous. But there is no question in the Scripture it is absolutely clear and certain. If you do not choose Jesus' way, you will spend eternity in hell without God. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man gets to the Father, comes to the Father, but through me. Paul, pardon me, Peter and John, when they were before this same Sanhedrin, in Acts chapter 4 made a specific statement that there is no other name given among men under heaven by which a man must be saved other than the name of Jesus the Messiah. Well, I'm so glad you emphasized that because the number one apostasy that is just barreling through the church today is the teaching that there are many different roads to God, and that we are intolerant to say that the Mormon, uh, that the Muslims don't have their road, and the Jews don't have their road, and the Buddhists don't have their road? Who are we to say that we are the only way? And I always say, I don't say that. Jesus said it. No. You, you know, that's the interesting thing. God's not intolerant. God is in control. <laughs> and if you don't follow His rules, you will fail. Well, John records in chapter 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And part of our message is to flee from the wrath to come into the loving arms of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Can you think of a better place to be, Tim? No, sir, I cannot. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy. Doug, I want to thank you for being our special guest today. You've been a real blessing, but also want you to tell folks how they can receive information on your recordings and your writ of petition. If they want a copy of the petition of the writ of certiorari, they can get on our website, which is believersbibleclass.com. We also have lesson materials there and audio recordings. Yes, wonderful recordings of his Sunday school lessons. Well, folks, that's our program for today. I hope it's been a blessing to you, and I hope the Lord willing that you'll be back with us next week. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. Dr. Reagan's book, Jesus, the Lamb and the Lion, contains fascinating and informative information about every aspect of the life of Jesus, from his miraculous conception and birth to his incredible resurrection from the dead. In fact, the book goes even beyond that because it looks into the future concerning Jesus' promise to return and how Christians should be living in anticipation of that return. It also takes a look back before his birth at the many Old Testament prophecies concerning his life and mission. Dr. Reagan shows you how the first coming prophecies were fulfilled Filled, and he proceeds to prove that we are living in the season of the Lord's return when all the second coming prophecies will be fulfilled. The book also contains in-depth evidence of the virgin birth, 
the divinity of Jesus, and his resurrection from the dead. There's even an entire chapter devoted to the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus that are recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures. The book's title refers to the two symbols of the Messiah that were used by the Old Testament prophets. They prophesied that the Messiah would come the first time as a suffering lamb and would return as a conquering lion. This down-to-earth, easy-understand book can be yours for a gift of $20 or more, including the cost of shipping. To order, call our office at the number you see on the screen Monday through Friday between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Central Time, or you can place your order through our website at lamblion.com. Again, call the number you see on the screen or order from our website at lamblion.com. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus.